Hey everyone, and welcome back to Big Mad True Crime, where we get big mad over true crime. I'm your host, Heather Ashley, and warning, because today's case will be incredibly difficult to hear, but it's important to hear because something has to change. Small talk sucks, so let's dive in. Tessa Daniel had a tough life. She spent most of her childhood in the foster care system, bouncing around from family to family, looking for someone to love her as if she was their own. Her friends came and went as she moved from home to home, family to family. Nothing was ever permanent, and she did whatever she could to adapt, but her choices weren't always the best. As she got older, she fell into the trap of bad men and the disease of addiction, and it created a cycle that Tessa couldn't seem to get herself out of. In 2011, she gave birth to her first daughter, Millie, and while she loved her daughter, her home wasn't stable. Tessa never denied her addiction and the strain that it put on her ability to being a mother, but being honest about it didn't change anything. Millie's father was unfortunately not any better. He himself was in and out of jail, and just two years after giving birth to Millie, Tessa gave birth to a second daughter, Layla Daniel. Millie and Layla were amazing little girls with personalities to the moon. They were innocent and loving and full of energy, but still their home life wasn't what they deserved. Tessa continued to struggle with her addiction. Layla's dad was, much like Millie's, in and out of jail, and life for these sweet little girls wasn't looking like it was going to get any better anytime soon. In fact, it just seemed to get worse. At one point, Tessa started allowing complete strangers to take care of the girls while she was off doing whatever it was that she did. Those girls were literally left in the care of people their mother had just met minutes before. Eventually, Tessa's great-aunt Peggy stepped in and told her that Millie and Layla could come stay with her, and Tessa knew that Peggy could give them the life that she couldn't, so she agreed. Peggy lived in a retirement community that didn't allow for children to live there, but these girls were her family and she knew that they deserved a better life than they currently had and knew that she could provide it for them, so she broke the rules. I mean, who wouldn't? Unfortunately, though, Peggy's home wouldn't be a forever solution. Before long, her retirement community found out that Millie and Layla had moved in and they told her that it was against the rules of the association and that they could no longer stay with her. It couldn't have come at a worse time because Tessa was now facing jail time, and without a blood relative available to care for them, the girls were entered into foster care, just like their own mother had been. In April of 2015, the girls began the process of going through the juvenile court system to find a foster placement. They were initially placed in the home of a super sweet woman, a nurse, who was happy to take in both girls so they weren't separated, while a longer-term foster family could be established. And it just so happened that while this was happening and their case was being heard, a law student and intern with the Henry County DA's office, 27-year-old Jennifer Rosenbaum, happened to be sitting in and the case seemed to really touch her. 
According to Atlanta News Now, Jennifer had been a foster child herself, just like Tessa, and now just like Millie and Layla. She had experienced some trauma growing up, but had seemingly made a great life for herself, joining the Army National Guard, running for a seat within the local government, and now as an intern in the DA's office and a law student. Jennifer felt like she wanted to give these foster children the home they deserved, so she actually went and found Tessa on Facebook, which seems really unprofessional, but whatever, and told her that she was sorry about what was going on and that she really hoped everything worked out for the best. After Tessa scrolled through Jennifer's Facebook a little, she asked Jennifer if she would be willing to take in the girls while she got her life together. On paper, Jennifer seemed perfect. She was married, had a great career ahead of her, lived in a stable household, and was someone Tessa felt like she could trust with her girls until she was able to take care of them herself. Jennifer jumped at the chance and immediately got the ball rolling. Her and her husband, Joseph, who was a corrections officer at the time, applied to be foster parents and specifically requested that Millie and Layla be placed in their care. Jennifer's supervisor at the DA's office even wrote a letter of recommendation vouching for her. The following month, the girls started having visits with Jennifer and Joseph, getting to know them and building a relationship to make the transition more comfortable. They would have these play dates where they'd spend the entire day with the girls, and then they'd go back with their temporary placement. And after two months of these regular visits, on July 24th of 2015, 11 Alive reports that Jennifer and her husband were officially approved to become the long-term foster parents of Millie and Layla, and the girls came to live with them. Overnight, they became a family of four and everyone was elated. Tessa couldn't have felt more comfortable and great aunt Peggy was relieved that while the girls couldn't live with her at the moment, they seemed to have hit the foster care jackpot. In the beginning, Jennifer kept in contact with Tessa and Peggy regularly. She would facilitate phone calls between the girls and their mom and would schedule visits so that they could still spend quality time with their great aunt Peggy. And it really just felt like a dream situation. There wasn't this fear of losing contact with the girls. There was no fear of them being separated. And there wasn't any fear of them being placed with a stranger they knew nothing about. They felt like they'd really gotten to know the Rosenbaums and the Rosenbaums initially seemed really open and interested in nurturing Tessa and Peggy's relationship with the girls. But as wonderful as Jennifer and Joseph seemed, as cooperative and open as they initially came off, things slowly began to change. The calls to Tessa became less and less frequent, and Peggy's visits with the girls started getting rescheduled and then eventually canceled altogether. Both of them left to wonder what was going on, what changed. How did this perfect couple who was so open and transparent, who seemed to specifically seek out this family to help, all of a sudden seem to flip the communication switch? I mean, everything they were doing to keep them in the girls' lives was voluntary, but that didn't make it sting less when it stopped happening. While Tessa and Peggy were left in the dark with more questions than answers, as far as DFACS knew, or social services, 
Everything was fine. They didn't seem to feel like anything was wrong or have any concerns about the girls. So while Millie and Layla's birth family were reeling from what they felt like was a loss, to the system, Jennifer and Joseph still seemed as wonderful as they ever were. But on November 17th, 2015, on Jennifer's birthday of all days, everything changed. That night, Jennifer was home alone with the girls when 911 got a call. It was Jennifer. She told the operator that she had a foster daughter who was choking on a chicken nugget. It was Layla. She said she'd tried giving her the Heimlich and was now trying CPR and hoped she wasn't hurting her because she wasn't exactly sure what she was doing. EMS rushed to the scene as quickly as possible and into the house, but once they got inside, they were taken back by what they saw. Jennifer wasn't performing CPR anymore, and Layla had absolutely no signs of life. She wasn't breathing, she had no pulse, and her frail little body was riddled with bruises with her entire right leg in a full cast. This was a choking call. They didn't expect to show up to a child who had no vital signs whatsoever and countless visible injuries all over her body. EMTs did everything they could. They tried resuscitating two-year-old Layla all the way to Piedmont Henry Hospital, but in the end, she didn't make it. 30 minutes after her arrival, Layla was pronounced dead. But the EMTs weren't the only ones to notice all the injuries inconsistent with choking. As the doctors were trying their best to save her, they too noticed the bruising all over her little body. They immediately recognized that her injuries were consistent with abuse and called the police. This is when the investigation into this seemingly perfect foster family began. As soon as DFAX was notified, a caseworker was sent to talk to Jennifer about what exactly happened the night Layla had died, and Jennifer's story was something else. Jennifer told her that Layla had been in her high chair eating carrots and chicken nuggets when she started convulsing with her head arched back and her eyes rolled into the back of her head. She assumed Layla was choking, so she took her out of the high chair and started doing the Heimlich, pounding on her back, trying to dislodge the assumed chicken nugget. When that didn't work, Jennifer said she used her finger to try and sweep the chicken nugget out of her throat and took her over to the sink, pressed Layla up against it, and continued to pound on her back, trying to get her to stop choking. At one point, in a bizarre twist, Jennifer admits to using a butter knife to try and push said chicken nugget down Layla's throat. Eventually, Jennifer says she took Layla into the living room where she switched from the Heimlich to CPR. I'll remind you that during the 911 call, Jennifer said she didn't know what she was doing. But Jennifer had been in the military and should have gone through extensive classes to become a foster parent, which should have taught her exactly how to do all of this. Defax asked her about the bruising all over Layla's body, and Jennifer said she simply hadn't seen them. How that's possible, who fucking knows? But her explanation was that she'd never bathed Layla, so she'd never seen them. EMTs saw these bruises. There's no way in all of free hell that her foster mother, let alone her foster father, had missed them. But the investigation into Layla's death was just 
beginning, and when it came time to perform her autopsy, it became painfully clear that something very, very sinister had taken place in that home. Layla had a completely transected pancreas. In layman's terms, her pancreas, one of her internal organs, had been broken in half from the outside of her body. Imagine the amount of force that would be needed to cut one of your internal organs in half from the outside. I looked up this kind of injury, and as you can imagine, it's not common at all. However, according to the Journal of Emergencies, Trauma, and Shock, when this type of injury does happen, it's most frequently associated with blunt force trauma. On top of Layla's pancreas having been literally broken in two, she was malnourished and had injuries from head to toe, to her head, chest, abdomen, pelvis, back, arms, and legs. I mean, there isn't much else to cover. She had severe bruising on her back, face, head, abdomen, and legs, and had a fractured leg, a fractured arm, and a fractured rib. Now, the fractured leg had a cast on it, but the fractured arm didn't. The broken leg was said to have happened after an incident at gymnastics back in October, about a month before she died, but no one seemed to know anything about the broken arm or her fractured